The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Psalm 42 To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Amen. We all know what it's like to be sad. We recognize from the very first few chapters of the Bible, that something is terribly wrong. We see the world that that God has made, of which He said it is very good. We see it thrown into chaos. When the man and the woman that He made to worship and serve Him in this world that He had made choose instead to trust the words of the creature rather than subduing it, They submit to the serpent and do not trust the word of the Lord. We know that from their sin, the whole world has been turned upside down, that things are not as they were created to be. And one of the results from that is sadness and sorrow of all different stripes. You have husbands fathers, wives, and mothers who abandon the faith and abandon their families. You have children who refuse to listen to their parents and submit to them. You get fired from your job for no fault of your own. Your health fails. A loved one's health fails. People die. Accidents happen. Financial distress comes on you out of nowhere. People hate you without cause, may not even know you. You're wronged and you get no justice. You make plans only to have everything fall apart. We're overwhelmed by tragic things that may not happen to us specifically, 
but we look at the world around us, a world gone mad, and see evils like abortion, wars, famine, and suffering of all stripes taking place. And these things grieve us. You know, it may not even be an event that has happened to you. Sometimes we're just sad. Life in a broken world is difficult, and sometimes the weight of that just sits on us like an anvil. What do you do? What do you do in those moments? I mean, we all have the things that we want to turn to to distract us, exercise, food, work, whatever. But do those things provide you any sort of lasting relief? No, they don't. Because they can't. They weren't designed to do that. So, Christian, what are you to do in the midst of your overwhelming sorrow? See, that, that's where a psalm like Psalm 42 is so good for us. It's a psalm of lament. And now, we may be tempted when we come to the psalms of lament to just kind of breeze over them. Especially if you're already in the place where you're overwhelmed by your grief and by your sorrow, you might think to yourself, yeah, I know that this is the Word of God, but I, I, I don't need this one right now. I'm going I'm to sit this one out for just a minute. Because what we like is upbeat. We like happy. And we're taught by the world around us that that's all you need. You need positive vibes. Don't bring, that, don't bring those bad vibes in here. Don't come at me with that. No, I need positivity. I need my spirit to be uplifted. But that's foolish. We need the Psalms of Lament. This is God's inspired word to us, breathed out by Him, that we may be taught, that we may be corrected, that we may be rebuked, that we may be trained in righteousness. The Psalms of Lament are a grace of the Lord to His people. And here's why. See, the Psalms of Lament, they don't sugarcoat anything. They present the world just as it is in light of the fall, in light of man's rebellion against God, in light of the fact that the whole of creation is groaning under the weight of the fall. And they do this within a biblical framework, guided by the rule of God over His creation and His steadfast covenantal love for His people. And Psalm 42 most certainly does that. And it's a psalm that I believe is so helpful to us because it actually gives us a question to ask when we're in those moments, when we're brought so low. And it's a really straightforward question. Why am I so sad? But more than that, it teaches God's people how to actually do battle with our sorrow. How to continue longing for God, who is our hope. But then that raises one more question. Why is it that I do long for God in the midst of sorrow? Where does that come from? 
I mean, shouldn't sorrow actually drive me away from God? Perhaps you felt that, that feeling of your sadness wanting to draw you away from the Lord. Well, this psalm, it deals with that as well. And so what we're going to see in this psalm are two threads kind of running throughout that are interwoven as the psalmist goes back and forth, back and forth, and those are deep sorrow and great hope. And so let's, let's look at the text together. So that first thread that I want to examine is deep sorrow. Now, uh, like many of the psalms, we don't know the exact setting for what's going on in the life of our psalmist. We're told that it was written by the sons of Korah. So these guys uh, were men that David appointed to service at the tabernacle when he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem or, or, or to Jerusalem and, and set that up. Their job there at the tabernacle was to offer songs of thanksgiving and praise while other priests offered up the regular sacrifices. But here, as we see, the psalmist is struggling for joy while dealing with his sorrow. Look at verse 4. The psalmist has, has been pouring out his soul. He is unloading all of his troubles on the Lord. And his troubles are evidently very great. I mean, look at verse 3 and what he says there. I'm sure you can resonate with this. Have you ever been to the place where you've been so sad, so worn down in your grief that you simply couldn't eat? That food was maybe offered to you or put before you and the best you could do is just maybe kind of stir it around with your fork? Or maybe you just immediately pushed it away? I mean, just the thought of it just nauseated you? You couldn't even eat. That's where the psalmist is. His only food are his tears. And those are flowing night and day. So this is a deep sorrow, and it's an ongoing issue. There's no quick resolution for him. When he goes to bed at night, it's his sorrow that's there to tuck him in. And when he wakes up in the morning, his sorrow is there to throw open the shutters and greet him. The dark clouds have rolled in, and they may never roll away. It seems as if there's no escape. And to make things worse, he's got enemies that are pouring salt into the wound. We see the first reference to them there in verse 3. You know, rather than coming to him, seeing his tears, and offering him comfort, they mock. Where's your God? You know, the implication clearly being, your God doesn't want to help you, or I know what it is, he can't. Maybe he's not even there at all. And their taunts are just as relentless as his tears. They taunt him, verse 9, they taunt him all the day long. So he has no escape. Turns inward, sorrow. Turns outward, Taunting, no relief. But look further at what he says about his enemies there in verse 9. He describes their taunts like a deadly wound in his bones. 
So on the one hand, he's talking about their persistence still. They're ever with him. But I also believe that what he's getting at is the content of what they are saying to him. Remember, their taunt is, where is your God? Their taunts stem from their own unbelief. They do not trust the Lord. They do not revere the Lord. They do not fear Him. And so out of their own wicked hearts comes their unbelief. And their unbelief is like a poisonous wound that is festering in Him. And that's a big problem because those doubts already exist in His own mind. We see the first glimpse of that in verse 2. Read again what he says there at the very end of verse 2. He says, When, when will I come and appear before God? He's got feelings of abandonment that are only beginning to grow. We see that in 7. Because there in verse 7, he references these breakers and these waves that have washed over him. But look again closely. Your breakers... Your waves have crashed over me. He's making reference to the judgment of God. Anytime we have these breakers and waves mentioned, you might think of Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2. He says, it's your breakers, your waves that have washed over me. We see this in other psalms. These are all references to the judgment of God. And so the psalmist is in the place of going, not only do I not know when I'm going to see you again, but I know that I'm in this place of great sorrow because you, God, have afflicted me. Leading to his cry in verse 9. We can feel this deep in our bones, I'm sure. Why have you forgotten me? And ultimately... That's the psalmist's problem. You see, the only solution to his sorrow is the Lord. But the Lord feels far away. And so do you see the threat that his enemies pose to him? They're pressing in with their scoffing and with their unbelief to something that he's already feeling. And so the threat is that their unbelief is just going to wash over him. It's going to seep throughout him, drawing him away from the living God, drawing him into their own unbelief. You and I can relate to everything that this psalmist is going through. You've been there where your troubles have consumed your every thought. Last thing on your mind when you go to bed First thing on your mind when you wake up. You have, I'm sure, poured out your soul to the Lord through many tears. You've had that sneering, or maybe you do have that sneering family member, that co-worker, that neighbor, who in the middle of your difficulty, in the middle of your sorrow, pulled the pin and chunked that hand grenade at you. Where is your God? that religion of yours that you're always going on about? What good's it done for you? Where's he at? And you felt that deadly wound festering in your own soul. You felt, or you've at the very least been tempted to feel like God has turned his back on you 
You've cried out like the psalmist. God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? Are you mad at me? Why are you doing this to me? Now, I want to be clear. Two things are true. It's not wrong to feel sorrow. That is in no way the point of this psalm. But sometimes we act like that's true. I have to put on a brave face, a happy face. I have to go out and act like there is absolutely nothing in the world that is wrong with me. And, and sometimes we even take that and we put it on the Lord. Well, God is, has been so gracious and he's been so merciful to me, so I just should never be sad. I, I can't be sad. Like, that's, it's wrong of me to be sad. But I, I want to argue that looking at the world biblically, in light of the fall, in light of Genesis 3, that a right response within us, in the Christian, is to have a rightly oriented sadness. Human suffering, especially the suffering of those who are near to us, that should grieve us. Death should grieve us. You know, we, we get into this place where we start talking about death, and we talk about it, oh, it's, it's natural, it happens, it's coming for us all. Death isn't natural. That's not how it was supposed to be. That's not the world that God created when he said it was very good. That is a result of the fall. For the wages of sin is death. Death is not natural. It should grieve every single one of us. Sin, unrepentance, unbelief should grieve us. Broken relationships, sufferings of various kinds, these should produce sorrow in us because we know this isn't how it's meant to be. But second, that does not give us a license to just sit in our sorrow to when it comes upon us to do nothing, to just let it run wild over us, over our thoughts, over our feelings, over our actions, over our words. Because when we do that, our suffering is turning us away from a biblical view on suffering and sorrow. We can acknowledge and should that it's a result of the fall, but we also must acknowledge that God has acted, is acting, and will finally act to put away all of it. So then, we must do something with our sorrow. We may not just surrender ourselves to it, but we're prone to that. Sometimes we just give up. We do just sit in it. We do just say, this, it's not going to get any better. So I'm just going to marinate in my sadness. I'm not even going to try to address it. Other times, in the midst of our sorrow, we indulge sin. We get angry and we just lash out. We say whatever we want. We spew vulgar speech. We grow impatient, harsh towards others. 
Or perhaps we turn to a vice. We turn ourselves to gluttony. Just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat as if the food is going to take away the pain and make the situation better. We indulge sexual sin. There's a myriad of other ways in which we just give ourselves over to our sinful impulses as a surrender to our sorrow, desperately looking for something to make us feel better. What we have to understand is that our grief does not give us a hall pass to just do or say or think whatever we want. Other times, we may see resolution to whatever it is that's ailing us as our only hope, where for us, our only context for joy, the only way that I think that I could ever be happy again is for my marriage to improve, for my child to act right, for my financial situation to get better, or whatever it may be. But putting all of our hopes in resolution to the problem is surrender. And other times we just pretend like nothing is wrong. You put on a smile. I don't want to bother anybody with my problems, so I'm just going to act like nothing is the matter. My friend, you're just giving yourself room for the poison of unbelief to eat you alive. It's okay and right to ask for help. So then, what do you do when you're there? When all the breakers and waves have washed over you? Well, there's something else I would very much like to show you from the text. Because I want us all to see what the psalmist does in response to his sorrow. And so that leads to the second thread There is great hope for the believer. Look back with me. Look again there at verse 4. See, the psalmist, as he's pouring out his soul to the Lord, it brings to mind for him these, uh, these memories of sweet times of worship when he would gather with God's people and go to the tabernacle to praise the Lord. And now you might look at that and go, well, well, that's a painful memory, I'm sure, because he feels far from the Lord. And I'm sure there is some pain for him in there. But I don't think that's primarily it, because look at verse 5. Look where he immediately turns. See, he doesn't follow this up by crying out to God, How long, O Lord? But instead, the fires that are simmering in his soul for the Lord are stoked. His response to remembering these times of worship with God's people is to go, wait, time out. Why do, I, why do I feel so hopeless? It doesn't have to be that way. I don't have to be overwhelmed by my sorrow because I know the living God. And I can turn to Him. I can hope in Him. And so he begins to recognize God for who he is. This is my God who has delivered me, who has redeemed me, who has redeemed people for himself. That he is personally identified with saying, you will be my people, I will be your God. These are the things that he remembers. God is faithful. 
And so he doesn't surrender to his sorrow. No, his hope is in the steadfast love of God who keeps all of his promises. And so he turns to more thoughts of those things. We see that in verse 8. He feels the weight of his sorrow, but then he remembers that by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and by night he is singing over his people. God has not left him. He does not leave his people. That is not who he is. That is not what he does. And yet we see in verse 9 the reflex in his soul. What about me? Haven't you forgotten me? But then look again at verse 11. What is the response to his sorrow? Once again, he says, stop. No. Why? Oh, my soul, are you turned down? Why am I overwhelmed by grief? You know who the Lord is. You know that He is faithful to His people. He is your salvation. He is your hope. He is your God. So stand firm. The psalmist is waging war here. He is waging war against his sorrow by reminding himself of the goodness of God. You see one another example. Look at verse 6. He acknowledges his sorrow. My soul is turned down. Therefore, I remember you. The Lord is his only hope because the Lord is faithful. He does not abandon abandon his own people. But then, we may look at this psalm and have the question, okay, but what is God doing here? The psalmist seems to be doing a whole lot of remembering. He's turning his mind here, he's turning his mind there, he's asking himself questions, but where is God? Has God forgotten him? No. Look at verses 1 and 2. See, the, the psalmist begins by expressing how deeply he longs for God, this deep yearning in his bones for the Lord. He thirsts for God like a deer that is dying in a desert wasteland, thirsts for water. This is an intense longing deep in his soul. And we might look at that and go, well, how does that make any sense? How does his sorrow, how is it actually worked to inflame his desires for God? And according to the flesh, it doesn't make sense. Because according to the flesh, we have no desires for God. No one seeks after God. What Paul tells us in Romans 3, quoting from the Psalms. And so according to the flesh, yes, it makes perfect sense for your sorrow to drive you as far away from God as you already are. But that's a worldly view on suffering. We fear to be filled with doubt. We need to ask the question, where then does this longing come from? Look again at verse 8. Why is this longing in his soul? Why is this verse, this thirst there? Because the Lord is commanding by day his steadfast love, and by night his song is with him. 
The Lord has not left him. He has not forgotten him. The evidence of that is that the psalmist still has a thirst in his soul for God. It's the steadfast love of God. It's his covenant love that he has placed on his people that continues to draw us back to him, that causes us to want to cry out in the midst of our sorrow, Lord, help. And so Christian, this is how you have hope in the midst of your sorrow. Are your sorrows filling you with a longing for God? Are your sorrows bringing you to the point where you want to cry out to Him and you are crying out to Him, Lord, have mercy. Lord, please help me. Lord, keep me. Lord, bring my suffering to an end. Are you there? You do that. Because by day, the Lord commands His steadfast love. And by night, His song is with you. The longing that you have in your soul for God is from Him. He's the one who draws you back to that sure and steady anchor of your soul, Himself. A, a book I would recommend to you, a short little book by John Calvin on, uh, well now, I didn't write it down, and now I can't remember the name of it. A little book on the Christian life, that's it. He has a chapter in there on suffering in which he talks about the way in which the Lord submits his people, subjects his, his people to suffering and why that is. And his argument, I think you see here in the middle of this psalm, why does the Lord do that? To put in his people a distaste for this world and its moth-eaten, rusty treasures and to long for that him, to long for that treasure hidden in the field, to long for that day when we will see him face to face. Your sorrows are not evidence that God has left you. That thirst in your soul, a reminder that he is with you, that he is drawing you close. You see, it would be really easy to take this psalm and look at it and go, all right, I just, I've just got to screw myself up. I've got to white-knuckle this bad boy. I've got to force myself to have hope. It's all on me. I've got to scratch and claw to, to pull this out of me. But that's not where godly hope comes from. That hope comes from being joined to Christ, from the union that we have with him, the rest that we have in the knowledge that God will never forget us is because Christ bore that for his people. Christ was forgotten. Christ was forsaken for you. He knew the deep sorrow of being afflicted by God in this way. You perhaps think immediately to Jesus on the cross crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But if you think back, I will not try again, ma'am. If you think back just a few chapters to Christ in the garden where his sorrow 
on full display. Matthew 26, 36 to 39 says this, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Christian, Jesus knew what it was to be forgotten by God. He experienced the full weight of that when he drank that bitter cup of God's wrath as he hung dying on the cross. But because he has experienced that, because he has gone through that suffering, those who are joined to him by faith never will. He drank that bitter cup to save you from it. And so if you have found your rest in him, then the steadfast love of God is on you. He will not forget his own. And I want you to consider what that means. You're having been joined to Christ by faith. What God has done through Christ is he has adopted you as his child. He has brought you into his family. And to those who are in his family, who are of the household of faith, he gives his spirit. And look what the spirit of God causes the children of God to do. Galatians 4 verse 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Christian, those desperate cries to God for aid, your tearful prayers asking God for help, those longings when you're overwhelmed by your grief, all evidence of his faithfulness to you, that his spirit is at work in you, conforming you into the likeness of Christ, bringing you to trust in your Father in heaven. The flesh, the flesh doesn't produce this. The flesh produces faithlessness, turning us away from God and towards worldly sources of hope that can't provide it. I realize there are probably some of you that may scoff at this, who the idea of suffering is for you just fuel for the fires of your own unbelief that it's evidence that God is not good, that he does not care, or that he is not there. But you need to understand what this means for you. That apart from Christ, there is no hope for you. You are without hope in this world. Sorrows will come for you, because they will come for us all. And your sorrows, because you do not have that steadfast, that sure and steady anchor... They will eat you alive. You can grab for whatever you want to. Grab for food. Grab for work. Grab for sex. Grab for money. Grab for family. They cannot deliver you. They will not 
deliver you. They may satisfy you for a moment, but then what? Then where do you turn when your sorrows are still there? And then what are you going to do when those things that you turn to are the source of your sorrow? Then where will you turn? It's reality that has to be grappled with. See, the greatest possible sorrow that anyone could experience on this earth does not measure up to the sorrow of eternally suffering the wrath of God in hell. But Christ offers hope. He is hope for His people. He delivers all who turn from their sins and who trust in His saving work from the wrath of God. To turn to Him because it is in Christ and in Christ only that we can rightly say with the psalmist, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. And so, Christian, your union to Christ, who is your hope, is going to produce something in you when you are overwhelmed, when your sorrows become immense. It's going to produce fight. Fight against your sorrow, not surrender, because surrender is just not an option for those who are in Christ. We must do battle. And so what does that look like? It looks like continuing to thirst for God, to continue longing for Him. And that shows up in a myriad of ways. Continuing to cry out for God. Are you to the point with your sorrow where you don't desire to pray? You don't desire to read the Bible? You don't desire to be around God's people? Stand firm, my friend. Don't stop praying. Even if all you can muster is, Lord, please help. Keep seeking the Lord. You could sing doctrinally rich Gospel-centered songs remind yourself, not just on Sundays when we gather, but all week long, sing and sing and sing some more. Stir up your soul. May this, let the Spirit of God stir you up through rich songs to remind you of the hope of the Gospel. And Tom does a wonderful job of putting out the songs that we're going to sing each month on our website, on our blog, would be a great source for you in your sorrow. Pull up that playlist and just let it run and sing to the Lord. You can read doctrinally rich, gospel-centered books. Your elders, we have a list of books that's ever-growing that we would be happy to put in your hand, not the list, the books, put them in your hands that your soul may be stirred, your affections for the Lord kindled as you're reminded of who He is. I mentioned one earlier, another that I would highly recommend to you, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Take it up and read and be reminded of the love of God for His people. A fourth, bring in the body of Christ. 
Being a member in a local church where you are known is a grace of God to you. So bring in people who are near to you. Share your griefs with them. You don't have to bear it on your own. You don't have to be a hero. Bring in others. Share your sorrows with them. And let the body do what it does. Let them correct you when you start to surrender. Let them grieve with you. Let them encourage you by reminding you of the hope that is yours in the Lord. And last, maybe not last, but take up your Bible and read it. It's so easy to start turning for that instant source of gratification. I'm going to look to my phone, I'm going to look to my food, I'm going to look to whatever, I'm going to immediately turn there. But take up your Bible and read and be reminded of the good news of Christ crucified for you, of God's steadfast and never-ending love for His people. A few verses that I would share with you that I would encourage you to store deep in your mind. Memorize passages of Scripture so that when those moments come and the sorrows are starting to wash over you, you have an immediate storehouse to go to and say, no, I know this is true. Psalm 23, 1 through 4. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. John 10, 27-29 Christ, our good shepherd, says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 2 Corinthians four sixteen and 17. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. These are means by which the Spirit keeps those flames of desire in us burning for the Lord. That's what I'm wanting to do. I'm wanting to turn my mind back to the living God who has made his people his own, who has made me his own through the death and resurrection of his son. And it's through his son that God has declared that promise that he made all the way back in Genesis 3 to crush the head of the serpent and to fix 
all that was broken in this world that he had made, that he has, that he is, and that he will finally realize that through Christ his Son, our Lord. And he has not forgotten. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love to us in Christ. We thank you that you are steadfast, that you keep us as your own. And oh God, please help us as we battle sorrow, as we battle a whole myriad of miseries. Keep our eyes set on Christ and the hope that is ours in him, that we may bring glory and honor and praise to you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.